everybody, welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. This is this week's long form episode. Trevor Hall here, your host. We got one segment for you. Long conversation with a friend of mine who's never been on the podcast before from Arlington Group. His name is Simon Cat. Uh, Arlington Group calls home London, uh, but we find Simon on the uh, shores of Italy. Uh, so happy to. Happy Simon could take a few minutes out of his uh, summer break uh, to share some big thoughts here, not only on junior mining and the commodities, but also a lot of these macro themes we're seeing. We talk China, we talk Japan, obviously we talk a lot about the U.S. and what's going on with the economy here and specifically the bond market, but we also talk a little bit about this rise of Saudi Arabia that we've been getting a grasp of for the better part of the last couple of years. So, we had a great conversation with Simon, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Special thanks to Western Copper and Gold, Fireweed Metals, and Arizona Sonoran Copper for their continued support of the podcast. You can go to miningstockdaily.com to see a full list of all of our partners here on the podcast. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, hit a review, a like a like a subscription or even share these podcasts or the youtube channel with your friends and colleagues all right everybody let's jump into my conversation with simon have a wonderful weekend and be well Everybody, welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is this week's long form episode here on the podcast. Happy to welcome in a friend of mine, but new to the podcast. I was able to meet Simon Cat last year at the Beaver Creek Precious Metals Summit. We've stayed in contact. Uh, over the last few months and throughout the year and we've had a lot to talk about in fact i even got to spend some time with him in his neck of the woods uh, next to his office there in london he is the director of arlington group asset management obviously in london uh but right now we find him uh, off the coast of italy simon you're looking nice and bronzed and tanned and relaxed this summer Hey Trevor, I did go for a run at uh, 11 a.m. this morning and that was way too late than normal, way too late. It's 30 degrees and pretty crowded the footpaths down to the beach, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, well, it's really it's it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm glad we could get this done. So, uh, I, you know, thanks again for your time. I know it's it's a busy week for you. Absolute pleasure, buddy. Anytime. All right. Uh, so because this is your, your one true curtain call here on the podcast, Simon, let's get a, a sense of... Uh, who you are, your your background, your experience, and and then let's talk about that you personally before we talk about really what Arlington does. Sure, buddy. Um, so I'm a 52 year old Australian, lived in London 25 years, been working in finance for 30 or 40 years. Um, I am try- I don't have any professional qualification as a mining guy, but normally. When people talk about me, they say, yeah, Simon, he's that mining salesman in London, that Aussie mining salesman in London. And now in, now in Italy, as you said, I've got an Italian wife, by the way. Um, so we, um, yeah, so I moved to London in 98. I've worked for Canadian investment banks most of my career. Uh, they were in succession Royal Bank of Canada, then founded the Haywood UK European office, founded the GMP UK Euro- European office. 
Um, when I took my team from Hayward to GMP, Hayward struggled on for a while and shut that, that down. And then um, GMP actually shut me down back in 2016. I remember real clearly my friend and my chairman, Gene, calling me from from the airport in Toronto as he was about to fly across here and said, Caddy, can we meet at the Mayfair Hotel tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.? I'm like, oh, shit, Gene, I guess the uh, I guess the meeting today, the board meeting of GMP Global didn't go that well. He said, nah. I said, should I call the compliance guy to come and meet us at the um, at the Mayfair Hotel at 9 a.m. tomorrow? He said, I've already called him. Oh, good. Okay, buddy. <laughs> so that was a close friend that I called my business partner, Charlie Cannon-Brooks, called me up in in early 2016 and said, hey, why don't you bring your business, which is mainly financing and advising mining companies, over here to my business, which is called Arlington. So Charlie started Arlington back in 2004. Uh, it uh, is a little, it started life as a little fund manager, managed about $100 million, mainly an Aussie Kerry Packers family money. Uh, and then um, by the time I found him, um, we found each other. Charlie was had a couple of small um, London Stock Exchange vehicles. Um, one of them we've since turned into a royalty finance business called Duke Royalties, listed on London. Ticker is simple to remember, Duke, D-U-K-E. It's got 150, 200 million pounds of assets. That's about its market cap as well. But really, we're known as the guys that give access to mining companies, access to our European and, and global relationships, institutions, and high net worth individuals. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned the background of going from Haywood to GMP, but you, you talked about your team. And I mean, that's a whole different uh, a whole different realm of the business I'm unfamiliar with, Simon. I mean, do a lot of the times, do I mean, you mentioned the team. I mean, a lot of times do these teams kind of move together from, from house to house when, as things kind of evolve? Yes and no. Um, I think... People, of course, in any business are the most important thing. They, they create the culture of the business and whether it succeeds or fails. Yeah, I had a team of uh, 11 people at Haywood, um, left one behind, took 10 uh, at GMP. I spent an increasing amount of my time. What you find is in good times, people want to come and join you. In bad times, they want to leave. And so the bigger the business gets and the tougher the cycle is, and of course, commodities are really cyclical, um, the more time you have to spend on hiring and firing people. So... Um, yeah, uh, what, what we do now is if you walk into our office, you see about 20 people in London, but they work for companies that we've created rather than directly for our firm Arlington. We have one employee, Charlie and I um, are 50-50 partners in the business, um, and we find that way it's lean and mean when we go through the down part of the cycle, as we are now, have been for the last two years or so, um, so we don't have to spend all that time focused on HR. So is Arlington Group, could it be like classified as a, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but more like more or less an incubator of uh, junior exploration companies and providing those platforms to, uh, to get traded? Um, yeah, incubator, financier, um, another phrase that we use is, is merchant bank because we put our own money into stuff that we do. We, you know, our, our principles are simple. We, we, we like to try and finance companies, management team, mineral, all bodies uh, that we think will come out of the ground and that are decent people at a reasonable price. Everybody can make some money. We like to put our money to work alongside our clients. We think that aligns our interests. Um, and, and of course, different commodities, different stages of companies' life cycles work at different times in the cycle. So for example, 
um, year and a bit ago, April last year, we listed a company called, uh, which we called First 10 PLC on the listing. Uh, we'd done a prior round a year previous um, at 15 pence. We listed at 30 pence back in April last year. Went to close our books on the first in 20 million pound financing the day that Putin invaded Ukraine. Um, that was that was sort of back in the first quarter of of last year. So our, our problem of having a book that was two or three times oversubscribed, the tin price at that time had doubled in the previous 12 months, um, was was suddenly taken away. We didn't have to didn't have that oversubscription problem anymore, but. Um, you know, that, that was at a different stage of the cycle. So to your question about, you know, what do we do? Um, we put about three million pounds of our money in there at about three times on average the current price, which is um, seven or eight pence a share. The IPO came at 30. We put our money in at an average of sort of 20 something, including plenty at 30, also in the private round of 15. So, um, but uh, what we've learned is and, and to help describe Arlington is when when stuff takes longer, costs more, or goes wrong, if you have an active hand in management, and in, my partner Charlie is the chairman of First Team PLC, uh, and, and we recruited the CEO, then you can do what needs to be done through the tough part of the cycle, cutting costs, uh, focusing on the things that will get you through until that money is available again, whether it be ours or other people's. Uh, there's a number of companies that are on your books and, and people listening to this podcast for the last couple of years will obviously be familiar with them. Obviously, Discovery Silver, partner of Mining Stock Daily. Uh, Salazar Resources, obviously doing really uh, good work there in Ecuador. You mentioned First 10. And so, I mean, I, I would recommend going to uh, the website and, and taking a list of taking a look at the list of companies that you work with here. Uh, but Simon, you you mentioned that you didn't you didn't really have a, a mining or resource background. It really was uh, predicated on investment banking. I mean, what was it back in your career that kind of got you hooked on resource exploration in those equities? Trevor, it's it's simple and. Reminds me of a question somebody asked me, um, the CEO of a London-listed African gold company said, Caddy, why are you still in mining? <laughs> and I said, well, because I really enjoy it. You know, I find it fascinating to try and figure out which, you know, which, which, which piece of geology will turn into an economic ore body, um, which commodity will go up next, um, uh, you know, compare one ore body to another, um, try and you mentioned Salazar in Ecuador, trying to figure out what's going on politically in Ecuador, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and hopefully over time you get better at assessing those risks. So um, the, the guy asked me the question why I was still in mining. He was in a hurry to retire his CEO role of a non-listed African gold company. Um, <laughs> and he thought he wanted to go off and work in tech. I'm a West Australian, so I grew up around the dinner table talking about the latest lithium the latest um, tantalum discovery, they were one and the same, by the way, now the world's largest lithium mine in West Australia called Greenbushes. Used to be a tantalum mine and still is, but now the lithium is worth a lot more. Um, the latest nickel discovery, um, those, that, that's sort of in my blood, you know, West Australia and the Australian economy is driven by its, its resource exports uh, and they change over time, gold, coal, iron ore. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and today lithium, etc. So, yeah, that, that so I, I've learned the the minerals mining stuff by osmosis and experience, but not actually trained as a geologist or an engineer. And why the? And 
I guess what, not only why the transition into London, but you know the the impact that your career into London had. I mean, what was it about going from West Australia to London that really, you know, let things really blossom? Um, it was it was just the um, instinct of a young man to get out and see the world. I, I remember I was working in Sydney. I'd done four years' work experience for an Australian firm called Hartley Poynton, which is now part of a firm called Euros Hartleys in West Australia. Um, I said to my boss, hey, Andrew, I want to do what you did. I want to go offshore, work in London for two years. Then I want to go to New York and work there for two years, then come back here to Sydney and run the firm. And he said, great, well, just give us a few months. We're in negotiations with someone to come in and buy a stake in the, in the business uh, and we'll find a job for you in London. So I said, great. So luckily for me, um, Royal Bank of Canada then bought a 20% stake in my then employer, Hartley Poynton. And uh, I took a 90% pay cut and moved to London. <laughs> so I went to London to see the world. Um, RBC, I recall, were paying me... Um, Twenty-five thousand pounds a year in the my first year of, of working for them as a junior equity sales guy, and eventually all of the Australian analysts that were working either for the firm in Australia or in London, they all left. And so, <laughs> so back, back to your question: How did I end up being a mining guy? My the head of the mining team in London is a guy called Chris Orchard, nice guy. He said, "Simon, do you want to do global mining?" Because my other two guys had left, and I said. Sure, I've got nothing better to do. So um, I became the global mining salesman in London. I had a couple of partners in places like New York and, and Toronto. Um, and there's a, a guy in Canada who was well known if you know the industry. He then went to, after working at RBC for 12 years running the global mining group, Ernie Nutter went to Capital Group and ran the global mining uh, research function and the portfolio management function for Capital, the big fund manager there. So Ernie taught me global mining. Um, and uh, here we are today talking about mining. Uh, well, it's an, you've just been all over the place. You've seen a number of cycles here since you've you know went out on this, went out in your career here. So let's talk about where we sit here currently, and your thoughts and how you are approaching these markets. And Simon, I think uh, one of the things I'd like to do is not just talk about how tough and challenging these markets are. Let's uh, provide a little bit of silver lining if we can as the conversation continues. Uh, but we do know there are challenges. You just mentioned a few minutes ago about this, uh, you know, almost two year uh, bear market we've had in junior exploration equities. Uh, and I'm sure as, as uh, I'm sure Arlington is one of those institutions that really has uh, felt this after, you know, being very successful, uh, you know, in 2020 and, and prior to that putting companies together. But from where you sit, can you describe the current market challenges that Arlington and similar houses such as yours are feeling right now? Sure. Yeah, I, I like your idea about making to keep a silver lining on this, because otherwise we just get too depressed. Um, <laughs> yeah. Look, the the end, the end point of of any um, of any conversation about mining, junior mining, is that we know that the cycles come and go. You tend to get two or three good years and then about five or six tough years. We're just in one of those tough stretches right now. But we know the good times come again, and it's always a function of the commodity price um, and the overall stock market, because as my old partner, Ernie Nutter, used to say, so these things are, are equities first and they're mining equities second. So if the stock market's falling, as it generally has been for the last two years, although, of course, this year, led by tech, the S&P's been actually pretty strong. 
just hasn't the materials and the miners haven't done very well. Um, we know that their time will come, and they're they're certainly inexpensive. The world, the biggest mining companies are trading on PEs of eight or nine times for BHP, Rio Tinto, Vale, or Vale even cheaper. Um, and you know, over the course of the cycle, back in 2010, these things were trading at double those multiples, and they were growth stocks. And it was the Chinese super cycle that was going to be strong forever, so you could pay more for them. So, of course, your question or your uh, the, the the, if, if, the, if the subject is when do things get better for junior mining finance, I think first of all we have to get the bigger companies have to get re-rated and we're watching the M&A cycle. That's telling us that the big companies think it's cheaper to buy and build. Glencore recently made an approach for tech in Canada. Um, I think there's a long list of suitors for that. Vale is spinning off their base metal business. That's got some outside investment from the Saudi government. Um, they're a logical buyer. Um, Newmont maybe might be a buyer of, the, um, of, of tech uh, as well, we've seen Newmont by Newmont uh, by Newcrest in Australia. Of course, they spun that out about 30 years ago. Now they've bought it back. So uh, and BHP bought Oz Minerals in Australia. Um, so I think the industry is telling it's, che it's cheaper to buy than build um, because the commodity prices are pretty high. And so the, the sunk capital of those existing mines is um, is twice as valuable as it used to be because the cost of cement, the cost of energy, the cost of the trucks, the cost of the people. Is, has gone up a lot, is continuing to go up at double-digit rates. Uh, I, for one, think that the Saudis and the Russians, OPEC Plus, will be successful in, in pushing the oil price back up well above $100 in the coming year or two. And, um, and then as those big natural resource equities get taken over, as they go back up to get more of a, a mid-cycle rating, which is, say, 50% above where they are today, um, then I think the cash starts to come down to the juniors and and if the overall stock market is falling, that's not going to help. But I think we're we're really close to a rotation. We're waiting for the broader cyclical turn in natural resource equities for Chinese growth to stop falling. Well, one thing that I think is a misunderstanding and is misrepresented by the most of the media that I read, Trevor. You might read some other more China-specific media. Is that China is in deflation? If you read the glass half full version of Chinese deflation, actually Chinese deflation is caused by the basing effect of oil prices in the first half of 2023 being 30 or 40% lower than last year. Um, but actually oil prices are going back up again. So the opposite will happen in the next six months. And, and that's just because the CPI has food and energy in it. But if you go underneath that to core inflation as the Federal Reserve and other central banks like to usually use, that shows you that China has still actually got the kind of inflation that we all now dream for. It's, you know, it's running at sort of one or two percent a year, core inflation, and the oil price is going back up. So I do think that the the days of uh, big Chinese pumping using debt and SOEs to drive infrastructure growth, I do think that's behind us and we have to look to the Chinese consumer to drive their economy. Um, China does have issues with debt, um, but you know I think that generally the the state of China has made good decisions in terms of taking them into things like EVs, therefore for battery metals. Um, and uh, there are headlines around today about them potentially putting uh, restrictions on critical earth quotas again. So China will continue to be really central to commodities demand because most commodities are about half demanded by China. And China's actually doing just fine. And I think the rest of the world is probably starting to slow down. 
I mean, it's an int- it's an interesting that you say that because a lot of the media we're getting here in the United States, which is obviously leading to a pretty good sell off, and not only equities but also uh, the bond market this week, is on the back of news out of China. I mean, I was. It seems like every day this week we've woken up to new news, including uh, China. They're not going to publish their. Uh, uh, young worker unemployment numbers so that and i had to do some digging into this that they consider that age is 16 to 24 <laughs> it's pretty young mm. uh but it sounds like that the the last record that that unemployment number came it came at over 21 percent, simon and so they're going to stop even publishing yeah. it and they're not even going to skew it they're just going to stop publishing it at least that's kind of sense we get here there's rumors this morning as we record here thursday morning that uh, the communist government is looking to keep banks from selling equities uh, because the the index has been falling the last couple of days. And so, you know, it's interesting, you know, if you're going to run a capitalist system, obviously there's going to be ebbs and flows, spikes and troughs to, uh, to, the, to the cycles. Uh, but we're seeing, it, it obviously seems like there's a little bit of, Mm, it's indication that the the communist party is going to try to step in and, and save the system here i guess following up with that simon is you know what does this mean if if, if we if, if china is indeed in this downtrend and that reopening never came into fruition that a lot of people were expecting in the first quarter of this year what does that mean for commodities in a, in a general commodity cycle because the last time we had a super cycle was based on china buying and the news we're getting here it doesn't seem like China's in a position to be buying right now. Um, so firstly, I think we should remember that the same way that Chinese and Russian citizens uh, consume propaganda, we all consume propaganda as well. And the, you know, the media has, has different biases. The mainstream media in the West has different biases to Chinese and Russian media. But nevertheless, it's written with a certain slant by the media who might have a narrative about you know Chinese state control and meddling with capitalism. Trevor, I would guess you and I are both capitalist guys. We work in finance, so we, we, um, we, we do that because we want to make a, a reasonable living uh, and we believe in the uh, unseen hands of the markets being better decision makers than, than governments. So yeah, the Chinese capitalism with state interference is different to the one, different to the model that we know, but equally, if you think about, you know, how they can get things done, how they can suddenly in, a, in, in 10 years build a uh, an auto export industry that didn't exist 10 years ago and now they're the best makers uh you know if if i the reviews that i read because i haven't got a, a car at all by the way but i have had a look at a few with a view to getting a car as a service here in italy where you pay about 600 euros a month you get a chinese made volvo um because volvo is now owned by Geely, a chinese automaker um and and the reviews that I'm reading is they're pretty good. They're half the price of a Tesla, and um, they're, they're, they're you know they're they're just about as good. So look at look at the success of Chinese state control in EVs uh, as compared to say Japan, where they seem to have missed this EV in Germany, where they they seem to be falling behind the Chinese in terms of the cost and the quality but both seem to be you know well well combined with china's uh influence of the state there so yeah i, I again i don't think that we're going to see as much capital intensive material intensive growth in china as we saw in the last 10 or 20 years 
But I think if we as commodity guys can figure out which industries China wants to champion, critical minerals, battery metals being an example, um, then we can hopefully get on the right side of that trade. Uh, let's talk about another Asian country. That would be Japan here. You, you had sent me something in preparation for this discussion, Simon, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, Japanese investors are obviously also looking for yield. Uh, that's been a topic of, of sorts regarding uh, their yield curve control. Uh, just kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts here on Japan as they, uh, you know, and their kind of use of U.S. treasuries here. Is this something, are we seeing a little bit, I guess, on top of that, are we, are we seeing a little bit more contagion here as the sell-off in U.S. treasuries continues? Is some of that coming out of Japan as well? Yeah, I, I think it's really important. When I recall uh, uh, the, the biggest options trader in the Sydney market, back in Sydney when I was doing to be a stockbroker uh, in the mid-90s, telling me that um, he said you could always tell when the Japanese were investing in the Australian market. They called it the Tokyo Express. He said when the Japanese money started to head down in Australia and would always be chasing yield because, recall, the Japanese the Japanese bubble of everything, when it was the biggest stock market in the world, peaked back in 1989, and asset prices then started their deflationary slump, which has just finished in the last six months. That's really important because Japan's one of the fourth richest countries in the world, uh, or one of, in the G4, I should say. You've got um, China, US, Europe, and Japan. They've got $3 trillion of offshore savings, and as the, the finally we've got 4% CPI inflation in Japan, we haven't seen that for all of our, all of my certainly investment lifetime. Um, and they're taking yield curve control off, yield curve control away. What that means is the largest holders, largest two holders of treasuries, Japan with over a trillion dollars, China who used to have more but are now down to around 800 million, 800 billion dollars are sellers of um, of the world's deepest, most liquid market. And of course, the Fed is increasing its holding of of, uh, of treasury bonds, uh, albeit as trying to um, a step back from QE. So if we look through the next year, I think it's negative for other asset classes where the Japanese have owned um, bonds in, for example, emerging market currencies, treasuries, um, seeking yield, and uh, they, they tend to own not junior mining shares, but um, mm -hmm. the, the bigger mining companies, you know, you, you see them investing directly in, um, in all bodies to buy a copper supply. You see them investing in, um, in uh, oil and gas fields to give them that resource supply because they haven't got much of their own. Um, but I think it's negative for treasuries and, and negative for asset classes where they've got existing holdings of yield-seeking investments that are now going to head down, head back to Japan over the course of the next few years. Money is going to return home. Exactly, exactly, and and so the Japanese are going to step back from um, their the, holding their yield down. I believe that the the range for the the Japanese ten year bond has now moved up from half a percent to half to one percent, and that will gradually head upwards um, as they get secure that they've got inflation has returned to their economy after thirty or thirty plus years of deflation, um, and um, we'll see money heading home. Another country I would love, to, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I just want to pick your brain here, Simon. And that is really the, um, I don't know if you call it a resurgence or the rise of importance of Saudi Arabia right now. Uh, and it's not just from the oil market. Like 
there's a lot of mineral exploration happening in Saudi Arabia in uh, very prospective uh, areas of the country and that part of the world. Uh, you know, we've seen the likes of Ivanhoe and, and Robert Friedland uh, take a pretty strong stance of wanting to be the group that goes in there and explores as best as they can in partnership uh, with the Saudis. But on top of that, and he's stepping away, it's also been interesting as a man of sport and loves to watch, uh, you know, uh, uh, the football, how they're just incredibly willing to spend a lot of money on players to come to Saudi mm -hmm. and play. And I just think that's emblematic of, you know, what is happening to put Saudi on the map as a very developed country in this world. And it's happening, like, increasingly every day. I just, you know, and so I know this, I'm kind of spurring this on you, but have you given a thought about this, this rise of Saudi Arabia, not only from resources, but also as in, in culture and societal and societal recognition? Uh, yes, in, in a word. Um, let me ask you a question before I elaborate. Have you read the book Blood Oil about Mohammed bin Salman? I have not. It's a, it's a great read. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't always get through to the end of every book I read. Um, I've just finished, I'm just finishing, I'm in the last chapter of Material World, also worth a read, written by a, a journalist, a Sky journalist in the UK. I didn't think that would be that interesting because my world is Material World and therefore I thought, what would a journalist <laughs> be able to tell me? But that was, that was really interesting, worth reading Material World as well. But Blood Oil, um, the, the, the author of Blood Oil themed to not like Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, very much gave me a few insights into it. Did, didn't make me want to go to Saudi. It did not make me want to go to Saudi Arabia, um, given the uh, his his view of the world. But gosh, um, yeah, I do think it's really important. Um, another anecdote on Saudi Arabia, which is worth mentioning, is uh, a friend of mine, a guy called George Cheveley, who runs a fund in London called Ninety One. Was previously known as Investec. George said last year when he went down to the February conference in Saudi Arabia, they've just got this mining conference going. He said that was the most important and interesting mining conference he'd been to for, for 20 years um, because he said you could feel the wealth moving around, that, that things are changing. And, of course, the single most important natural resource asset in the world is in Saudi Arabia. And I, and I had this in my head because it's freshly read in material world. It's the, the Gawa, um, I'm going to get the spelling slightly wrong, but it's something like G-H-A-W-A-R. Uh, and that's, it's a thousand kilometer long oil field. Uh, and that, uh, in terms of the source of primary energy, that has a double digit, that, that alone is a double digit source of energy for the whole world since it was found back in, I want to say, the 1960s. Um, so Saudi Arabia today, plus minus nine or 10 million barrels of oil a day and a rough, plus, roughly 100 million barrels a day market. Most of it, half of it comes from that Gawar oil field. Um, they will continue to be super important. They're leading the uh, charge, Saudi Arabia are, in terms of cutting back production because commodities, of course, are priced at the margin. We know from as recently as the pandemic that um, that you you don't easily turn off oil demand and fossil fuel demand. As much as we all believe in the green revolution and we'd like to make sure our planet's nice and green, we also want the lights to be burning. We want to recharge our phones overnight, our new Teslas. 
Um, we're going to use our stove to make our evening meal. And most <clears throat> Saudi Arabia, as much as anywhere, has, has, has the ability to turn on or off oil supply. They also want the, the oil price higher, of course. And importantly, um, U.S. energy production of oil production looks like it's probably peaked now um, in the shale oil. So in, um, <clears throat> coming back to your question around what does Saudi Arabia mean for mineral investment, um, I think a bit like the Japanese or the Norwegians, the big sovereign wealth funds, they, they, they don't like to come down to the junior mining end of the world, sadly. And I, I, I've never been to Saudi Arabia, so this is secondhand read looking in from afar um but i you know i have watched them put money into um uh ivanhoe electric i mean probably no better money provided than robert friedland uh i did watch them take a 10 percent stake for 2.9 billion dollars into the vale um base metal spin out uh, mark kudafani who's the chair of that since july last month he's actually an aussie miner by the way living here in italy um, coming to keynote at a little conference we're hosting here at the end of September. Um, so I'll ask Mark when I see him about the Saudis. Um, but I think for now it's just at the big end of town. Um, I think they'd like to get mineral expertise into Saudi Arabia as well. Barak have got a uh, small interest in a, in a copper gold mine there in Saudi Arabia. But I think we're going to see them diversify their, their fossil fuel wealth into minerals as into other industries. Is there opportunity for resource speculators in Saudi Arabia right now? Is there opportunity for a firm such as Arlington in Saudi Arabia right now? I doubt it. Um, whether it be Saudi or Dubai uh, or the Middle East, uh, I've often, not, uh, from time to time, heard people uh, say, you know, go to the Middle East, there's all these petrodollars there. Um, and uh, there's there's lots of lots of spare cash sloshing around. Um, I personally have never gone there um, because it's it's um, I think it would take many years of investment to understand who the right people were to speak to. Um, I do know people have gone there uh, and have spent lots of time and energy doing it, um, looking for money, looking for investors. But um, mostly, I understand that that's been disappointing. Um, now, I think there's a different answer if you're Vale or BHP or you've got some large uh, existing producing assets, I think, um, or, or if you're Robert Friedland, but I think for the junior mining sector or for Arlington as a, uh, as a participant in that, I, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, general outlook for the rest of the year. Uh, we are really sitting in some precarious positions here throughout the metals complex from precious metals to base metals here. Uh, but we're also seeing a uh, general macro environment in a very interesting position as well here with uh, bond yields selling off throughout not just the United States, but globally, Simon. Um, August, uh, September, typically pretty volatile months, no matter what year it is. And it's just not right now. Uh, you know, what, what, what type of outlook do you have for the, for the remainder of 2023? So speaking for Arlington, which is my partner and friend Charlie and I, um, we are cautious. We are, we, we've got some cash. We're conserving the cash we have to support the companies that we're invested in. Um, we think the overall stock market looks extremely fragile. Um, you and I were chatting earlier, Trevor, about the tech starting to, to roll over. Um, the investor survey sentiment that I'm reading is surprisingly bullish. It seems that this sort of 15, 20% rally in the S&P 500 led by 10 stocks for 2023 has 
has increased confidence in the average investor. And actually, that's what it always does, of course. It sucks money in at the top and the money goes out of the bottom. Although as a, as a resource investor, junior mining investor and financier, like, it feels like we've been now in this grind for two years. So, you know, the success of NVIDIA and the AI chips is completely irrelevant to the all of my junior mining explorers and developers because they're all down 20%. I mean, <laughs> our, our, our good friends at Discovery Silver, gosh, we financed them at a dollar twenty back in in March April, we we thought that uh, you know that was silver gold about to take off, and the stock's now trading around seventy five cents uh, in line with its industry peers, down forty percent. That's how my precious metal sector looks, my precious metal holdings look at the moment. So um, overall, stock market think it needs to come lower, as you said. The treasury's back up. I think what will happen is we'll see the S and P five hundred will be a tail of two halves. And for the materials, I think it will be the reverse. So the, the 15, 20% gain in the S&P led by tech, I think that unravels in the second half. Why? Because the US economy does have this lag effect to um, the higher interest rates. I think if the, the risk is that if China and Japan continue to sell treasuries, um, that as the, the economy slows and the uh, and the profits slow and the stock market comes lower. So at some point, I think if the sell-off in U.S. Treasuries gets disorderly, the Fed will be forced to come back, reverse QT, as it's had to do in the past, and we'll get into QE. It will be called yield curve control. Uh, it'll be the Fed intervening in the 10-year and the 30-year to to um, bring down that end of the market. And that will be the signal, the trigger for precious metals to really fly, I think, at the moment. Real yields have been going up, as measured by the Treasury Inflation Protective Security or the chip yield. Uh, and I think that's we need that to stop. We think we need real yields to um, to stop. We need the US dollar to stop being strong. And I think we're really close to that turning point. So I think we'll see rotation. At the moment, all of the news wires in Ch on China are uh, overly bearish. So I think we're going to see some potential stimulus in China. Their economy will, will, on a relative basis, do better than the U.S. and the rest of the world because it's it's still growing ahead while the rest of the world slows down. And I think as the dollar weakens, the U.S. economy weakens, and maybe some uh, tinkering with the Fed, the Fed and the uh, yield curve, I think that precious metals will get going, uh, and we'll see rotation into materials as as China puts some gentle stimulus into their economy. Hmm. It sounds like moves from the same old playbook with the exception of yield curve control here in the United States. I mean, that would be something relatively new to most investors. And most, I mean, most, yeah. most, most of the country. Yeah. And of course, you know who, who invented yield curve control, don't you? I do not actually. The, the Japanese. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, I did not know they invented it. I knew that they had been implementing it for most yeah, of my lifetime. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So now, so they're they're taking the brakes off, and the you know the, the the rest of the world will have to think about doing more of it. You know, we're hooked on the QE. I don't think that's going to change, and particularly. If the uh, if the ten and thirty year treasuries continue yields continue to back up as Japan and China sell, uh, and the oil price is going up, there's nothing more important than for the uh, inflation or oil prices. And you've got Saudi Arabia and OPEC. They know that because U.S. production is now in decline, they can have an increasing effect on the oil price, and I think they'll succeed. Wait, it doesn't if if you use Japan's yield curve control as the focal point of the study. I mean, 
you can make the argument that Japan's economy did absolutely hardly anything that entire time. It was very stagnant. Couldn't you say that? For the last 30 or so years, yeah. I think it was dropping in and out of sort of negative growth, 1% growth and, and deflation, yeah. I mean, is that the risk? Is that a risk you think a country like the United States would be willing to take? Um, I, I've read I've read comparisons that more learned scholars and commentators than me have done, and uh, arguing that yeah, if you want to see where where the U.S. is going and the West in general is going, maybe more Europe than the U.S. because the U.S. does you know um, long term growth, GDP growth is labor times productivity. If you look at labor and productivity growth in the US, it's better than Europe, for example, where I'm sitting now. So I think it's it, I think the Japanese deflationary experience, aging societies and uh, lower interest rates, I think that's more of a European risk than a uh, than a US risk because US does have this fabulous uh, record of productivity, AI and is the latest evolution of that and it does have better demographics than places like japan and europe um but uh, i also think that the the, the japan the japanification of the u.s bond market is absolutely a, is something that we're going to continue to experience in the west and that means more that the central banks have to own more of the yield curve um particularly in the case of the u.s and this is specific to the gradual erosion of the U.S. role as the reserve currency of the world, with China and, and others having pretensions to that, but but still early days, that I think um, you know that we are going to see the Fed have to play an increasingly active role in managing the treasury market. All right, uh, Simon, uh, it's a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground, uh, basically the entire globe from east to west. <laughs> Uh, I look forward to seeing you in Colorado here in a month. And, uh, you know, for anybody who uh, maybe will also be attending the Precious Metal Summit or just want to follow up with you with any questions or maybe some some ideas of what uh, of work, uh, doing work with Arlington, how do they reach out to you? Uh, well, look, the word, come through our website, um, which is A-G-A-M. That stands for Arlington Group Asset Management dot co dot UK. Um, send me an email to scat, S-C-A-T-T-A-G-A-M.co.uk. Um, as you mentioned, I'm going to be in Beaver Creek. I'm going to meet slightly offbeat from the usual mineral um, uh, bottom path for me. I'm going to meet a helium guy. Helium? Did you say helium? Yeah. <laughs> the commodity I think is actually the most interesting right now is, uh, is helium because it's a byproduct of natural gas. Uh, it's up 10 times in the last 10 years. But from what I'm reading, it's going to stay up and uh helium what do you think helium's biggest use is trevor <laughs> well i would assume balloons but that's yeah exactly that's the answer that's yeah yeah that's <laughs> the only the thing we all know is party balloons uh, but that but party balloons by the way are about 10 percent of helium demand seems like quite a lot um the biggest <laughs> use up until this year was mri scanners because those oh. machines that take the, the big scan of your body when you want to think if you've got a brain tumor or something they need the helium helium's the key attribute of helium is it's a great thermoconductor and it has the lowest boiling point of any element, minus 269 degrees Celsius. So they oh. use it to cool down the magnets as they zing around your um, head. Um, that that, that d helium demand for MRI is actually falling. 
because it's it's more expensive than it used to be. And the number one use today, growing double-digit rate, is semiconductors because they use it to manufacture semiconductors to make a sterile bubble to make them and also to cool them down. And that's increasing double-digit. We know what's going on in the world in China and the US making more and more semiconductors. Uh, and um, the other cool use, which you can read about, is um, rockets. When you uh, launch a rocket, um, if you're Elon Musk SpaceX, then you need helium to cool the off gases because it doesn't combust. Um, and uh, rocket demand is growing double digits as well. So helium's a really cool commodity where we, we've uh, just started to pay attention to and just put a little bit of money into something to Starpio today in um, Toronto called Pulsar Helium. All right. Uh, I, I, I would love to meet him. Let's, uh, let's make an introduction here in a cool. month's time. Uh, Simon Cat, pleasure to have you on, my friend. Thank you much. So thank you, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, Trevor. Catch you in Colorado. All right. All right, everybody. That's a wrap here this week on Mining Stock Daily. We'll be back next week, obviously, Monday morning with the morning briefing. And have a great weekend. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.